Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Okay, welcome. Today we are going to talk about personal finance and I happen to be a Dave Ramsey fan, and I've been teaching the Dave Ramsey uh, system for college students for basically the last seven years or so. It was a class that I picked up early on when I started at OU in uh, 2011, and I have taught two sections of that per year for the la- for that amount of time. So. I started being a Dave Ramsey fan. I didn't follow his system at all, but I listened to him on the radio before I came to Ottawa. And then I was asked to teach his class, so my church was putting on a Financial Peace University uh, program, which is one of his products uh, geared more towards uh, churches, and it's set up a little bit different. I thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll go listen to this, and, and then I was sold on it and then learned that he had a whole college curriculum already, and so I've been using that ever since. So that's kind of where the, the genesis of using Dave Ramsey here at Ottawa University is. And so today, uh, I thought we'd throw out the system and some of the benefits uh, from an economic standpoint, also a faith standpoint on why I think it's good, and uh, let field some questions here between uh, Jacob and and Jason and and Levi, and uh, see if we can get them thinking about these issues as well. Because it's a pretty extreme standpoint. Um, I don't think there's any other big personal finance guru out there that says don't use consumer credit, period. Don't do car loans. Don't do credit cards. Uh, don't even have them, you know, on your body. Like not, well, just in case I have an emergency. Uh, he says, no, don't, don't do it. And a lot of that comes from uh, behavior. He, he argues that in the personal finance realm, it's 80% behavior and 20% finance. So you really don't need to be a numbers guru to have a successful life um, in terms of your personal finances, uh, but rather really think hard about the behavior and whether it's wise and prudent to get involved with consumer credit. So his basic system in a, in a nutshell is, is a seven baby step system. And the idea with this is that you do these in this order and you don't move forward until you've got the previous ones taken care of. And so baby step number one is to save up a $1,000 emergency fund. So even if you do have currently credit cards, get yourself a $1,000 emergency fund uh, because there's going to be an emergency of some sort. And if you don't have uh, at least that amount tucked away, then it'll likely wipe out any energy and momentum that you've built up as you try to get yourself debt free. And so that brings a lot of financial peace. Uh, My wife and I found when we uh, started um, with some of these baby steps early on to just have that thousand dollars and then, hey, if there's a car repair, granted car repairs might be greater than a thousand dollars, but you can cover a lot of things. The car needs new tires or there's a blowout of a tire or whatever. $1,000 covers a lot of things in life. And so it uh, increases the odds that you'll be able to handle that without taking on more debt. Baby step number two is to pay off all your debts, except for your house. So he does kind of carve out the um, possibility of, of getting a house or having a house loan, 
but otherwise everything else is gone. Car loans, student loans, of course credit cards and other things, uh, they all get paid off. And so you really attack it with what he calls gazelle intensity, where you order your debts from the smallest debt to the largest debt. Notice that's not interest rates, but you order them that way and you start killing them off one after one and you do what he calls a debt snowball so that the uh, smaller debts, once you pay it off, that monthly payment now goes to the next debt and so that you start really paying much more than the minimum by the time you get down to your last remaining debts. And I always thought that was interesting because it doesn't, it doesn't focus on the thing, I mean, like you said, 80% behavior, 20% finance. And so that's interesting because it is backwards from the finance standpoint. That's because, right. You know, the, you would want the stuff with the higher interest rates is going to accumulate faster. Yeah. But, but the reality is you, you have to have the cash flow to be able to accomplish the goals. Yes. And so it's, it's more like, I think it seems to me, he's, he's, he's just focusing on having, having more cash flow up front to be able to pay off more debt yes. like, so that you can do the snowball. Yep. So. He uh, uh, <clears throat> says from his studies that the average person pays off all their debts in 18 months. And so he's putting less weight in the interest rates and don't worry about that. Let's get the momentum. Let's uh, yeah. Over an 18 month period, the interest rate doesn't matter. It really is immaterial yeah. for the most part. Yeah. And yeah. so you get those early victories of yes, this is working. The system's working when you pay off your $200 Sears card and your, yeah and your $500 uh, Lowe's Home Depot card or something like that keeps that momentum going. And from a behavioral standpoint, I, I think he's right on with that as well. So, so once you get all these consumer debts paid off, the next baby step is to beef up that emergency fund to three to six months of expenses. And so this is um, getting it more into the area of what I would call self-insurance is the way I like to teach this to my students in that um, you have the ability to uh, raise uh, deductibles, which will lower your premiums, for instance, because you can now handle a $1,000 or a $2,000 deductible because you've got three to six months of your living expenses already saved up for that emergency if it, if it did indeed happen. And so from a cash flow standpoint, uh, that'll help if, if those events happen. And then as well as uh, job layoff, imagine having three to six months uh, tucked away and maybe you're not happy at your current job like Jacob's friend Eric was finding himself and all of a sudden it's a lot easier to say, you know what, take this job and shove it, right? Because you've got three to six months, Johnny paycheck. Especially, in, uh, especially in today's labor market, um, you should be able to reasonably find another job in a month or maybe two months at most. So you know, that brings a lot of financial peace to, to be living life that way where you've got a fairly large emergency fund. So imagine if, if you're making $5,000 a month combined with your spouse or something, you've got $15,000 minimum of cash in the bank to be a shock absorber to life. And I think you sleep a little bit better when you have that nice cushion of cash uh, to sleep on. Not literally that you have your pillow stuffed full of $100 bills, <laughs> but I tell you what, if you feel like doing that, you could. You could crumple those babies up and use it as a nice little <laughs> pillow. But uh, otherwise, keeping it in a, in a savings account is just fine as well. So once you have this now, imagine you're living yourself with a debt-free life. You don't have any credit card, no car payment, and you've got this $15,000 in the bank. Um, you're pretty free right now in, a, in many respects to uh, move to another state, maybe start a new job, a little business on the side. You've got a lot of freedom because all of your income there is, is ready to go. Okay, so that brings us to baby step number four, which is to start saving 15% of your income towards retirement. 
So you're putting a fairly large chunk. Most people aren't saving 15% towards their retirement, but if you start to do this as a young person, because you don't have a fraction of your income going out to Lowe's and Home Depot and a car payment, it's not that hard to get up to this 15% level. And uh, once you start getting in that and you're in a position where you don't have to touch it, you hear so many stories of people having to go out into their retirement account and take a loan against it, basically unplugging their investment. Why? Because they didn't have proper financial planning to really get to the point where they should be putting up, building up a retirement. And so as soon as you <laughs> unplug or you borrow against it, on top of the tax consequences you might be facing, you're really just unplugging what you were originally intending to do in the first place, where this was designed for retirement. So you start saving 15% and that is your, your golden egg. And, and there's lots of nice financial tools in the system to show what that money will grow to. This is where you'd be putting it into uh, his recommended allocations of 25% uh, of small cap, mid cap, large cap, and international mutual funds. So you're investing your money all in equities for the most part. Again, personal finance, you can, you can change things around, but these are his general recommendations, which I think are pretty sound. If you are putting your money into that type of thing for a 10 year time frame, right? Because this is long term, you're not gonna be unplugging it. The data is fairly strong that a well-diversified portfolio in, in stock market is going to pay out somewhere in that 8 to 12% range. So again, it's a personal finance question if you want to be a little more conservative and use an 8% range or if you want to be a little more out there and go 12. I tend to use 10% um, myself for retirement planning and I think that's a pretty realistic claim. And, and furthermore, if another financial crisis of 2008 <coughs> hits, you're not going to be wiped out by that. The gains will come back uh, as long as you've got this longer term outlook and you're not unplugging your investment. Okay, so uh, now that was baby step number four. So now we're on to number five, which is a college fund. And I think this is kind of interesting. We're going to put college for the kids after you've taken care of yourself for retirement. So remember, the baby step system says don't move forward unless you've got the other one filled already. And so Dave's recommendation here is that uh, the college kid takes a second seat, in a sense, to your own individual retirement. And it's not to say that you can't shuffle around. Again, this uh, system is there for a reason, but um, you know you shouldn't have this college guilt like you're a child abuser if you haven't paid for your kid's college, right? That's, again, a personal finance question, and, and hopefully you've brought up your, your kids in such a way that they have an expectation that they might pay for at least some of their college. That's a little bit of a personal opinion on my part, but my parents brought me up that way, and I think it was healthy uh, from an economics behavioral standpoint that that kids don't have this entitled view that college, A, that college is a necessity in life because I don't think it is any longer, especially with the rise of the trade schools and the types of incomes that other types of activities can get you outside of a college education. But on top of that, that if you do go to college, you're expected to be funding part of that in some way, shape, or form, that it doesn't have to be free ride unless parents happen to be in the right position to do so, which is fine. Uh, but if they are in the right position to do so, it's because they've maybe been doing a lot of smart things before, short of there being a grandma or grandpa or a rich uncle that's going to cover it. Okay, so now we got the kids taken care of with baby step number five. We move on to baby step number six, which is almost anti-American, and that is to pay off your house. So he suggests paying off your house early. Now, again, remember what your financial picture is here. You've got emergency fund, 15000 You've got no debt. 
You've got 15,000 going towards long-term retirement and mutual funds. So you've got 15%, a 15% yeah. of your income going that direction. So I, I like to kind of bring up these previous baby steps so that it doesn't seem so absurd to say, hey, why not pay off the house? Now, again, this is where I think Dave Ramsey would get some pushback from some people on, well, you can get a house loan for 4%. And if you, you said yourself that you expect to get 10% in the stock market, so why would you want to pay off your house before you know, why not dump additional money back in there? And the, and the answer is, is risk. It's not fair to compare stock market risk versus a home loan debt. I mean, it is risk-free to put your money into a house payment. You're living there. Every extra dollar, if you put an extra thousand towards your house, that's a thousand dollars of debt. That's a guaranteed 4%. Assuming your house loan was 4%. It's a risk-free investment of 4%. So it's totally not fair to be mixing apples and oranges with risk across the spectrum on different types of investments for retirement versus your house. Well, I, think, I think it goes back to the, the same discussion about cash flow too. I mean, that if, you're, if you have a business and you have zero debt, yeah. it's impossible for you to be insolvent. Yeah. You know, and so That's it's right. the same thing with your house. You know, if the whole world fell apart and you lost your $15,000 three or six month cushion or whatever yeah. Yeah. and everything else, you wouldn't have a house payment. Right. You would have a, a physical asset. You know, your your stock market, you yeah. know, your stock may not be any good for you, but your house would still be a, a place you could live. So. Yeah, and truly 100% control of, of your income at that right. point if you can knock out that house payment, which of course is the largest fraction of most people's expense in a given month is that house payment. Right. Okay, so now we're working off paying off a house. And then finally, baby step number seven is just wow, this is life without any debts. So build wealth and give. So now you've got every opportunity with your income as well as your previous savings to build wealth and give. And so just for the listeners, wealth, remember, is your value, uh, financial value at a given point in time. So right now, today, if I add up the value of everything I own and subtract everything I owe, that's your net worth or your wealth. And so now you can really build that up over time. You've paid off all your debts, so you owe, you don't have any debts of any sort. So every, all of your assets, your house, your 401k investments, uh, your laptop, computer, blah, 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 all your assets, everything you own, it's all to the positive. And so you can continue to, to build that up over time and hopefully become a millionaire. So a person who's a millionaire has a million dollar net worth. They have a, at least a million dollars worth of assets over their existing liabilities. And so that uh, is an important component. And Dave is also big on the giving. Uh, how, how much easier is it to give when we don't have all these other obligations, right? So build wealth and give is baby step number seven. Okay, well, I think that looks like a good place to uh, wrap up for this first half. On the after the break, we're going to open up more questions, and I also need to discuss the zero-based budget. And so, does that mean we have zero? That doesn't seem like a fun way to live life, and the answer is no. But find out the details after the break. The Gortney Institute's vision, by 2030, the Gortney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economics understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to student experience, 
society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. Okay, welcome back. Let's jump into the zero-based budget thing. So the zero comes from the fact that you're going to be uh, looking very forward-looking, what I like to call as the windshield approach to finance, in that you got your paycheck. So let's say you got paid today, and you get paid again two weeks from now. And so what we're going to do with the windshield approach and the zero-based budgeting is looking forward, let's give every one of those dollars a name. And so you have income minus planned spending equals zero. So you're simply allocating every dollar to a category of some sort. You're not going to get it perfect, but this is not really an accounting exercise per se, or at least the way I like to think of it. Of course, budgeting is accounting also, so that's probably not totally fair. But I usually think of people having doing accounting exercises, like let's say they swipe their card and then they, they use the registry that they could go back and recreate a set of books of where I spent my money. But at that point, it's too late in terms of decisions to be made with your budget. And so what's really powerful is to give every dollar a name before the next month starts or the next week starts. And that's how you start allocating your funds. A kind of a kissing cousin to that is the envelope system where some of your categories you could keep as cash um, or you could keep it in your checking account and have that account uh, separated into different categories. So just to give an example, you might have a food category and a rent category and a house category. And then my favorite category, of course, is blow uh, because I like to blow money. And so that's really a fun money or whatever you want to call it. Dave used to call it blow money, but I think just the maybe a little too racy or something and so he's uh, changed, <laughs> the cocaine changed, yeah the that. cocaine reference and everything but I sure have fun with it in class and the students seem to get a kick out of it so I still call it blow money so with each dollar having a name now if if you run out of food in the food envelope you have to make a decision of where should this come out of should the should the twenty dollars that I want to spend at the grocery store come from my rent envelope or should it come from my blow envelope because the food envelope is gone Right? So by having every dollar have a name, it forces you to think about what you're sacrificing to make that next purchase. Or potentially you just say, I can wait till my next paycheck to get food. Right? I have enough food in the cupboards. I don't have to buy it today. And so it really forces that decision. And I love that because it's really referencing what economists call opportunity cost. There's no such thing as a free lunch. So that's uh, the zero-based budget concept. I thought that was important to bring to the table as part of the system. Jacob, you have a question to kick us off on some Q&A? 
Right. Um, so I guess my first thing was kind of his suggestions on life insurance. Okay. I, I listened to the financial piece uh, CD or financial university yep. CD set. F- FPU. Yep. Yeah. And I think it's the 11th one that talks about life insurance. And I just re-listened to it and I actually turned it off because I just was like, well, I just disagree with this. So I'm done. Okay. Let, let me hear it. So he, he suggests to only buy term insurance. Absolutely. I do too. And see, I, I just don't think that's right for a couple reasons. Because he suggests putting money into things like Roths and 401k because it has a higher interest rates than just letting it sit in savings accounts. But almost all whole and universal life uh, policies have in, uh, interest rates on the cash accumulation side of it Correct. that are almost triple the yeah. traditional savings right. account. And yeah. also, if step five is starting a college fund for your kids, it could also be a vessel to do that through like maybe a, a return of premium policy. It's a vessel, but a terrible one, but yeah. So I, I just don't think that I don't understand why you would just put all of this money into term insurance, even yeah. though it's the cheapest one, just to, to at the end of that be done. And then your premium, if you get it again, is going to be significantly higher. Okay. Let me preface my statements by saying you should buy term if you're following the Dave Ramsey system. Okay. So, and, and I'll come back to why that's the case, but that's super important because a lot of people sh- maybe should buy whole life insurance because they're terrible savers. They spend everything they got. Mm-hmm. So what it is, is kind of a forced saving. Well, and that's why I like it. And, and it's a forced investment, but it's a lousy one in terms of rates of return. Okay, so here, here's, the, here's the general uh, arrangement. So you can maybe get a, I'm going to make up some numbers that are close to what I remember from class. So forgive me if this isn't, but this should be roughly a, the right deal. So you can get, let's say, a $100,000 whole life policy that's going to run you $130 a month. Expensive. And you can buy a $400,000 term policy that's going to run you, let's say, $30 a month, right? So way cheaper. You're saving like $100, a 20-year term policy, and you've got four times the coverage. You've got $400,000. So now you've got that incremental $100 that you can now put into a Roth or into some other investment vehicle, but earning... 10% mm-hmm. in equities. As long as you've got that 10 year run, you're going to outperform the lousy cash part of the investment, which is going to be a much lower rate of return. You're basically doing what the insurance company already does. Mm-hmm. See, when you, when you buy that whole life policy, the insurance company's taking your premiums in, they're taking your $130 premium and they're rolling a hundred of it into the stock market. Mm-hmm. they're making the profit off of the deal, not you. But then it's so, in of that 20 years, you go buy another term insurance and your premiums are 75 or 80 because you're 20 years older and you have no, no cash accumulation, no wealth built up. Okay, good, good point. But you do, it, that, that was my preface to this. If you're okay, following the Dave Ramsey system, you've got maybe a $400,000 net worth mm-hmm. after 20 years. So now if you croak your estate is worth 400,000. You've basically self-insured, right? You don't need life insurance. Life insurance is really death insurance. Yeah. You're the only thing you're doing is you're trying to protect the people that you left behind. And so if you've built up a $400,000 net worth, you no longer need a $400,000 policy. But then my thing with term insurance too, like you can't take a loan against, I mean, there's so many living benefits as well. But I think that's the point though, is that it's contingent on if your ability to maintain this level of no, okay. discipline. You don't need to take a loan against it. Okay. Right. Right. Fair. And then yeah. I guess, so my other question is, I know he suggests mutual funds as one of the primary ways to invest yeah. in the, the stock market. Yes. And I think that you would prefer index funds because there's significantly less 
commission. Yeah, you can do index funds. So index funds can fall into those classes too. So if you if you get into a large cap Vanguard index fund, it's following the S&P 500. So all of the stocks are being basically self-managed. So I have that personally, the oh, Vanguard okay. fund. So yeah, no, that's totally cool. You can do the index yeah. funds. All, it's like um, there's all, mutual funds that'll all cats that. are mammals, but not all mammals are cats. Okay, that all, needs a little explanation. Oh all, yeah, yeah. All <laughs> index funds are mutual funds. Okay. But not all mutual well, I've just never are none of the CDs that you ever, so I guess, talks. Uh, Those are about the, the set funds. that you have are old CDs. But oh, so also exchange okay. traded funds. Are you familiar uh -huh. with yeah, ETFs? ETFs yeah. So he'd be totally cool with ETFs mm -hmm. too. Well, ETFs, ETFs are effectively <laughs> the same thing as mutual funds. Because so. he also doesn't talk about dividend reinvestment programs, which is I think pretty weird too. That's okay too. No, like in a large cap fund, a lot of those could be dividend paying ones. So right. Those are little nuances. That he'd be totally fine with. Okay, and, and I would be too. I think the point is in equities. I think I think his point is just a set and set and forget diversified portfolio. Yeah. yeah, you don't have to think about it. You know, I mean, again, he's saying it's eighty percent behavior, twenty percent finance. Right, so he doesn't want you to have to think about the finance. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess I didn't think about him being older because I yeah. mean, I, I definitely did the envelope system for a while. And I made it be well to my own. Right. I've tweaked it my own way, and it definitely yeah. made a big difference. Yeah. Cool. But yeah, no, the term insurance. All he. he catches grief from other people. And like I said, it, uh, people who aren't in the system shouldn't probably do that because if they don't have the discipline to do, you know, some of the zero based budget and mm -hmm. some of the baby steps, if you don't have that discipline, then that's exactly what you're missing anyway of why you shouldn't buy a term policy and then tell yourself, Oh, I promised myself, myself, I, pr I make a promise to you. I'm going to reinvest the hundred dollars into a, into the stock market, you're right. just not going to do right. it. I just and, like it for me because it makes me, yeah, I guess, put so much away a month without even thinking yeah. about it. But you can become, I know you can, you can become more disciplined to do that on your own and you'll be way better off in terms of the rates of return. If you go into a financial calculator and you do the difference between the cash-based system at most on an insurance policy is like 6% maybe, yeah, 8% percent tops. Pretty good, so yeah. you go put in 6% versus 10%, it's going to more than right. double your returns. It's huge. I just think it's not more being on top of things, that. but yeah I, see yeah. What you, I see what you mean. Okay, cool. Uh, Jason, what you got? So I was going to ask on related to the not having a credit card. So if somebody's fresh out of college and maybe they don't have the best credit score or if they don't have a credit score at all, some maybe some tips that Dave Ramsey would recommend to help improve credit scores. Mm -hmm. Okay. So one of the big myths out there is that you pretty much have to have a credit score to live your life. And that is not true. So the credit score is a debt score. And so again, if you're committed to living your life consumer debt free, you actually don't need a credit score. Uh, granted a few like insurance companies, they, they might do a, an early pre-screening of, oh, what's your credit score to kind of put you into a category. But you can overcome some of those issues. Um, also, people would say, oh, my employer is going to check my credit score. And uh, that, again, can be overcome with, with other things. Um, so I haven't, your other credentials are going to weigh more into that than, than just the pure credit score. I, I don't think you're going to be losing a job based solely off the credit score, especially if your credit score is zero, because that means you don't have any debt. And, and the flip side is once people understand that, think about what a good credit risk you are for a bank to make a house loan to. Okay, let's look at Jason Dawes. Oh, you have zero debt. Oh, you're putting 15% away to income. Oh, you can more than afford, you have 10% to put down on this house. Like you are the golden child of exactly what the banks are looking for, right? So 
the credit score per se doesn't fall into what bankers traditionally called the five C's of credit. And on the spot, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to come up with all the C's, but it's uh, capacity, capital, character, and I'm missing a couple other. Anyway, you guys can Google that later. But my point is that the credit score was an, an innovation that came about because of our technology. But in order for it to have meaning, you do have to take on debt. And again, people make the, the promise that they're going to, oh, I just pay off my credit card every month. That's true. But if you don't have an emergency fund and you don't have other things, I, that's your bottom dollar that you're going to say, oh, you know, it's a little tight this month and little Susie needs to go to, to black belt practice uh, karate or something. And so, and the, the premiums do, and let's just let that, that credit card ride just this month. Let's, let's not make the minimum payment. What is it? It's, it's like a promotional rate of 8%, right? And all of a sudden, and of course, Chase and Bank of America and all these guys, they know this, right? They're not playing a game. They know this. And so they, you slide into the maybe carrying a balance. Maybe you don't carry a balance, but, but all of a sudden, oops, I forgot my payment this month. I was only a day late, but here's a $35 uh, late fee charge. So the late fees have been a huge revenue source for those banks over time. So remember, you're playing with a big corporation that studies behavioral economics. They study all this stuff. And they know that you're going to slip up. You're not going to be able to trick them. And if you do, what do you get? A few extra peanuts on uh, airline miles or something that you might not even be able to use anyway. I just, I don't think from a cost benefit analysis that that's all, that's all worth it. Yeah. And so again, I think it, from what I'm hearing, it sounds like, again, it's contingent on the rest of the program. Yeah. So like, yeah, of course, if you have money saved up, put down on a house, Especially if you get close to the traditional twenty percent. Yeah, I mean, good grief! Like your your credit score isn't going to matter, isn't going to factor into no. your rate anyway. He, he recommends ten percent as a minimum. So, right, but right. yeah, twenty percent is even better when then yeah. you can avoid the private. It just, it just wouldn't even matter what your credit score was. You're going right. to get one of the lowest rates yeah. because you've already got twenty percent on the house. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. yeah. So that I mean, I think yeah, I think as a, again as a self-contained system, any one part of it might seem weird, but right. Yeah. That's right. So I think my question is an exception to that. Oh boy, here we go. So, There's always the what Dave calls the but Dave segment. <laughs> so Dave, I think your system's great. I get the baby steps. I understand it all. Zero-based budget. I'm all in. But Dave, here's yeah. my situation. All right, so here's the but Dave Levi. For yeah, Levi. well, okay. So, I mean, I, I, I think I could dream up a scenario that would be fairly realistic. So he says, never have a car payment. Yeah, basically. Right. right. And so... Again, if someone's in, I don't know where, at what point in Dave's system someone could be, uh, but let's say you have two or three kids and they're really young, right? And let's say you are on the road a lot because you live far away from family or, you know, it's just, you, you travel a lot for some reason. Okay. Okay. In terms of like the highways aren't exactly the safest thing on the planet, right? And so you want the best safety features you can find in a vehicle, right? And you definitely don't want to break down in the middle of nowhere with three children in the middle of the night. And so you want a newer vehicle than potentially you could afford for one, for the safety features, and two, for just knowing that it's much less likely that you're going to break down than if you have an, a much older car. And so to me, it's, it's just a, if, if it's sort of a wash, you know, that, okay, well, I have this old car 
that's, you know, I paid cash for it, but every year I've got to throw two grand in it to keep it running breaks down and strands me on the side of the highway sometimes. And you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, to me, having a new car and having a car payment then is really just sort of spreading that cost out and maybe paying a premium a little bit to just make sure that, uh, you know, almost like an implicit warranty, right? Like the newer car just isn't going to throw a rod yeah, and I get you. on the side of the road. So to me, there's, there's like an, as an economist, I'm going to sit here and say like, okay, yes, it sucks that I have to pay 4% or whatever, or 3% for a car loan. And it sucks that, you know, I'm, I'm spending 30 grand on a car when I could spend 12 or 10 or seven. But what I get in value is so much more than that. Yeah, I get it. So uh, I, I totally get it. I totally understand. I totally disagree. So here's where I disagree with is that I think people put way too much weight into car bills that are going to be coming in and they overestimate that greatly. So I would suggest looking at the data. I have not looked at that data specifically. I have on occasion on different cars, like um, when we purchased the Lexus LS 400, for instance. Um, so I'm going to speak mostly from my empirical evidence. The newest car, it's currently 2019. The newest car I own is a 2002. Well, so, so but, this I, is, but this is anecdotal. Evidence, I, I know right? it's anecdotal, okay. but I'm yeah. saying look at the data, right? I, I, for his class. I started off with look at the data. So my experience over the years is that compared to a $500 car payment or 400 or 300, you pick a number. I never spend that much in repair bills. Never. And sure. don't forget that tires and oil changes and, you know, re regular maintenance stuff. Yeah. Every car needs sure. that. And what I've, what I've also found over the years is that my friends who have a, let's say a 2014 car or something else, they might have the same issues that I have with a 2002 car or potential problems. Like sure. once they get to a certain age. And so when you've got a car that's depreciated down, if you've done your research on how good they are, I bring up the Lexus LS 400 because it's arguably one of the best cars ever made. My wife is on her, was on her third one and we now went into an SUV, but that's a little bit different story. But the, one of hers went to 320,000. The other one was 260,000. And these cars are just was basically maintenance free. And the same was true of a Camry, a Honda. Uh, there's just a number of cars. And so right. what you can do is by avoiding that car payment, especially when you're early on, um, you're still going to get the airbags, all the, even 2002 there, my wife got into a huge head on collision at 75 yeah. miles an hour. Mm -hmm. And the old 1998 Lexus LS 400 airbags saved her life. Right. And but, that's okay. 1996. Yeah. But, but this, but that's, I'm not talking about the people in the front of the car. I'm talking about like, I, I mean, my side minivan, airbags, all no, that well, stuff. but I mean like side curtain, right? So yeah. like my seven year old kid, somebody T-bones my wife's van. Yeah. My son, his head hits the glass. And because we, because we had a, you know, a 2010 minivan instead of a 2013 minivan or whatever. Sure. I get you. It didn't have side curtain airbags and now he has brain damage for the rest of his life. Yeah. I'd say and look at like, the data, man. I, I would say look at the data and I know you uh, of all people can appreciate this, that I bet it's better than a lightning strike of your event that you just described. So you're the one kind of fear mongering on yourself about, I have to be like, there's no marginal cost. Yeah, too high. I just, I guess my thing is like, I just, the, the statistical thing, I understand those arguments to a certain point, but like, you know, these things happen in concrete reality. Like they don't, they don't happen in statistical probabilities, right? Like when they happen, they happen. And it's like your life has changed forever. So it's like, you should also wait that, you know, you should, you should allow that statistic to weight your cost 
But if the cost of the injury itself is a, a complete ruination of your life, well, take complete ruination of your life times 0.001%. You live a miserable life if you, know. you live your life that way. I mean, you should yeah. basically never cross the road. I don't know. Never cross the road if there's not a crosswalk or a I light. Know. I mean, you, that, no, I mean, I, I think, again, this, I think this is a marginal change. I think it's a, instead of waiting eight years to save up enough to buy a car that has very good safety features, just buy it and pay it off over a four year period. Yeah. yeah. I I'd say if you, if you looked at the, the data on that, that your, your fears are uh, unfounded would be my guess in, in that. And I haven't done the data. So if you, I'd love to see you do that and come yeah. back and, and prove me wrong. I also think yeah. you'd likely find a used car. Like let's say you really value that safety feature there's probably a used car that was the top of the line at the time or whatever, some car out there that's used, you might be able to find that feature at a lesser price as well. Okay, so yes, we could probably go back and forth all day long uh, with, with preference <laughs> evaluation on that. Yeah, Jason, what do you got? Oh, I was just going to add, not not to this conversation, but to a separate topic. Okay. If that's all right. Go for it. So I was just going to say that Dave Ramsey does have an awesome website and a couple of apps that are really great for especially people starting out he's got every dollar which is his budgeting app yes and i use that and it's fantastic you can get it on your phone use it on the on on a computer and it's been very very helpful and that's free and then if you wanted to pay a little extra it'll link up with your bank account as well so just curious that's do you one of do you pay the extra or not? I'm no, I don't. I, okay. I like putting in the information myself. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know. I haven't actually looked at the paid version myself, so I wasn't sure. But, uh, yeah, the free version I've shown to multiple people, I and I agree. It's that. a great. Okay. So, yeah, he's got great tools. Uh, FoundationsU.com is another free website that has some of these uh, things. But I'd say the Every Dollar site is actually the better one to start with, yes. Yeah, that's, it's been really helpful for me. And then I actually learned this from my brother. My brother listens to his podcasts yes. um, every day on his way home from work. And he found out that if you go onto his website, there's like things that you can sign up for. So for example, he and I both did the find a financial advisor and they're like Dave Ramsey approved financial advisors in your area. Yes. And then they'll call you. Actually, they call you really quick. Those like, three minutes and I had a phone call. Uh, but wow. so I got, I got to interview five Dave Ramsey approved financial advisors. Oh, wow. Good. Cool. Yeah, yeah. And that there is an advantage to that because then you know, you're talking to somebody who knows the system already, right? You're not having to do what I've just spent the last 20 minutes trying to even learn about the system. So once you learn some of these tools and you buy into it, now you've got uh, access to experts that you don't have to go down that path of trying to train them what you're trying to do because they already know they already got it. So I, I want to end this thing with just one thing that I disagree with Dave on, and that is with real estate investment and taking out loans. He basically continues to push a debt-free position, uh, which I understand and comprehend and, and value uh, to a certain degree. And as a person who did a lot of real estate investing, I fully appreciate getting too leveraged into real estate. But I, I think you are pretty safe if you don't take more than a 60% loan position on a, on a real estate investment. And that leaves enough of a cash cushion, both in cash flow and other things uh, that should keep you in line into the future if values start to go down and, and people aren't paying their rents or whatever, 
that gives you enough of a cushion. So that is one where one area where I disagree. Well, and, and the reality is, is that that's that's more of him giving you business advice, yeah. which is a separate, I mean, and to he, me, that's a separate thing from a personal, yeah. personal finance. Now, at the same time, I, I, I had some people go through my program and they own a small business here in town and they, they've, uh, they've appreciated that their, their business is debt free now too. So right. the mentality is still there. The mm -hmm. value system is still there. So, right. but sometimes you do have to have a, a first mover advantage in some cases sure. or jump into the market. And so that might mean taking on a loan. And I guess my advice that might differ from Dave's would be, don't go more than 60% of a loan on whatever the valuation yeah. is. So you buy a hundred thousand dollar property, you better be putting $40,000 up and but I, maybe but I think a $60,000 loan. I just think it comes down to risk to an extent, you know? And so it's like, yeah, you know, if you take his mentality on risk, then you, you know, you would never become an entrepreneur and try to invent something or whatever. I mean, it's like, those are really high risk types of activities, right? Yeah, so, yes, but I, I think just the opposite, actually. If you follow his system on the consumer side, right, and you're yeah. not laden with consumer yeah, yeah, yeah. Debt, I guess what I'm saying is like applying that just wholesale into the in, business into world. Into the business world, yeah. That's where I, right. that's where I tend to disagree with him. Sure. Is that I, I think there is a purpose for debt in the investment side, and right. I think it can be very valuable for you to uh, seize an opportunity when, when you see it. And you'll be positioned so beautifully to take advantage of that without having any consumer debt. And I think the United States would be a better place to live in if, if, if a lot of people viewed debt from an investment standpoint more so than some sort of consumer standpoint of getting a new 55-inch flat screen and, and uh, rent and rental. We need to do an episode on the difference between consumer credit and and an and, and investment, investment that, that, that has a return. To yeah. It. Yeah. Mean, it's huge. It's, I mean, it's a big thing. You're, 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 when in, from an investment perspective, you're using other people's money outside of you to pay off the debt. So it's really is fundamentally different. It can be dangerous though. If, if you do leverage yourself back in my day, it wasn't that hard to take a 90% loan on an investment property. And so that's when, if you have a 90% debt and the market does a 20% correction, so your hundred thousand dollar duplex is now worth eighty, but yet you have a ninety thousand dollar debt. Uh, you find yourself in a little trouble. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's the that's the thing that I my experience has been. If you're never more than sixty percent on a portfolio, uh, you're pretty safe. So. All right, with that, uh, I think that's a good place to wrap. And thank you all for listening. Um, on behalf of the Gortney Institute. Uh, here at Ottawa University, we appreciate you listening and be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.